Jesus Christ's death is really the topic that is found in Mark chapter 14. Uh, the opening verse that we've read together already identifies that there is a group of individuals that we have been meeting throughout the book of Mark that are wanting to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come uh, to deal with them in a moment's time. It's not the first time in Mark's gospel that I've had to entitle uh, a message or that it could have entitled a message, Jesus Christ's enemies, because they pop up all throughout the book. Over and over again, from Mark chapter 1, right the way through to chapter 14, we see the enemies of God as we're raising their ugly heads, trying to do a disservice to him. Now, whether it's in asking questions or publicly just denouncing him for his character or something that he has done, um, they are coming up over and over and over again. And in this verse, we find, verse number 1, that they want to destroy him, to kill him. To put him to death as it puts it in the latter part of verse number one. Uh, later on in the passage we have this strange sort of uh, side note it seems. It seems a little bit out of place. Uh, where we get this woman that comes along in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. And she performs uh, this, this great work, this task that uh, the disciples and Judas Iscariot especially seems to turn his nose up to. And thinks very little of it. And later on, we come to see a little bit more detail about this man, Judas, in verse, 12, verse number 10, uh, down to verse 11. We find him plotting against the Lord. This is all kind of leading our, our minds to his death itself. And this is something that we must approach in a, a right manner, with a right heart. Realizing that the death of Jesus Christ isn't just some fact of history that we lay hold of as Christians, that, uh, that we, we don't look at it as in an academic sense. We need to be careful of that. There are many critics in the world today, many people that call themselves theologians and philosophers and will come to the life of Jesus Christ and will have many different ideas and uh, opinions about what took place in his life. There will be many different arguments, even in chapter 14 and the verse number 1, before you get into the rest of the passage, people debating over the time periods, what it means for the feast of the Passover to take place and the unleavened bread and what was the distinction made between these two different things. For one, I didn't have the time to go into all the depth this afternoon to, uh, to highlight all of that. But in many ways, a lot of that's not even worth our time discussing and debating. Much of what is debated and discussed in Christian circles today is, is really pointless to a certain extent. Because they have so many disagreements and arguments about certain passages of scriptures that maybe are a little bit ambiguous. And we must come to the conclusion here tonight, for the vast majority of it, God has left it ambiguous for a reason. So we move on and see the main purpose and point of the passage. The main purpose and point of this passage is Jesus Christ's death. And that's the title for tonight. To focus our mind upon these various circumstances and little events that take place just in the week prior to him being crucified upon the cross. Now turn with me back just a moment to uh, give you a little bit more context to see why these individuals are speaking as they are in verse 1 of chapter 14. If you look there to chapter 12 of Mark, and we find, I'll not read it again for the sake of time, uh, but we find Christ speaking a parable. Verse 1 down to verse 11. You'll have it all in red in your Bibles, I'm sure. And here we have the, the account of him telling a story uh, about a husbandman that owned a vineyard, and he goes away off on a far journey, and over the, the course of his journeying, his servants are killed, and ultimately his son is killed. And at the very end of the passage, or this section of chapter 12, verse number 12, it says that they realized 
that he was speaking about them, speaking about the, the Pharisees, speaking about the Sadducees, speaking about the, the religious rulers of the day, the, the high priests that are mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 14. So I think this is, we could go back further, but I think this is quite a poignant point, part of the passage to keep our minds focused on. Because it says, verse 12, they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. They acknowledged the fact that he was against them. They acknowledged the fact that he was opposed to their false doctrines. And so they, at this point in their, in their endeavors, were especially against him. Especially wanting to put an end to his ministry. Especially wanting to silence this rabbi, this self-proclaimed messiah, as he is put in, in various places. Whenever we flick over to chapter 14 again, Perhaps we'll just read that uh, verse number one. It says, After two days, the feast of, un, uh, of the Passover and of unleavened bread, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. Now, there's three things that we want to highlight in relation to Jesus Christ's death from these first 11 verses. And the first one is the enemies plotting his death. I want to look at these enemies and just something about them very briefly. We're probably going to spend the majority of our time on the woman that was prepared for his death. And then in closing, we'll look at the friend that was partaking in his death, or at least commenced uh, this aspect of having a role to play in the final betrayal of our Lord and of our Savior. The enemies that were plotting it, if you look at the verse and, and the, the story of the gospel, we'll know from the very outset that these were cowards. In fact, for anybody to engage in the act of murder and to, to plot it out and to be prepared to take somebody's life, in the most part, is a coward. But if you think about the context here, these were the religious rulers of the day. This is almost like the press release on Friday night past gathering together to discuss murdering somebody. Imagine how ludicrous that is and how cowardice it was for them to, to be so afraid that they might lose their position and their prowess in society that they would be willing to kill another man, never mind the fact who that man was. The parable in chapter 12 would indicate in, its, in just a, a cursory reading of it that Jesus Christ was trying to teach them and show them that they, in their hearts, knew who he was. That's my reading of it anyway, that Jesus Christ is telling these individuals that they were worthy of damnation, worthy of death, and one of the reasons that they were, they were worthy of it is because they knew that when they took hold of the son, the husbandman's son, that they were killing the husbandman's son. And in like fashion, in a few weeks' time after chapter 12 was preached and proclaimed, they would take hold of the very Son of God, the husbandman of creation itself, and they would slay him. And I believe many of them knew full well what they were doing. Yes, there were some that were in maybe indifferent. Some of them were blinded, as the gospel or as the, the epistles tell us in certain places. The passage just slipped from my mind as it's standing here in the pulpit, but... There are some that maybe understood, some that didn't understand. But here I believe that the, the, the religious rulers, they were so focused upon their position, so focused upon their pocket props, that even during the time of Passover and the eating of the unleavened bread, even during this week of praise and public worship, they were plotting in the background to slay our Lord and Savior. And that should show to us their cowardice. It should show to us something of their craft that is mentioned here in the verse. And that, that word has the idea of, of simply being sneaky or deceptive and subtly trying to do something. 
They are trying to do it in the darkness of the night, perhaps we could say, or at least picture that in our mind's eye. They were doing this under the cover of being religious leaders, deceiving the people all around them. They wanted to take him subtly as well. It tells us there in the verse number two why they wanted to do that. It says, but they said not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Again, history can maybe fill in some of the gaps here for us and we could explain that one of the reasons they were afraid and they were concerned about this was because an uproar amongst the Jewish people at this time could have caused upheaval amongst the Romans. And if they had have caught wind of some revolt taking place amongst the Jews, they could have put an end to the role and to the activity of the high priests in the day and age in which they were dwelling. And so they were concerned that what Jesus Christ was doing was going to cause a revolution. And if revolution had taken place, they would have at the very least lost their position, if not their very lives. So these men, they were concerned. They were crafty about this plot that they were trying to put together. And they were cowards in the midst of it all. Whenever we read about the enemies of the Lord, very often we think of, of us being different. That we're not part of that group. We're not along the same lines as the Pharisees. We're not in the same camp as the scribes. We're not there with the high priests. We often sort of, because Christ pictures the publican and the sinner as being in a better position in a sense because they're humbled and they're ready to receive the word, we often put ourselves in that camp. And there are certain things that are true about that, but very often we we don't see ourselves in this mirror of Scripture. We need to remind ourselves that every verse of God's word is to be a mirror which we look into and search our our own hearts through. And perhaps even here tonight there are the enemies of God. The reality is that the enemies of God are everywhere. And even as believers we need to be aware of the fact that we're no different to them. Naturally speaking we were born from the same ilk. We had the same devilish father as they had. And so we must ask the very same question which the apostles ask and the disciples ask later on in, I think it's in uh, chapter 14, uh, whenever they're basically going around the table. I can't just see it uh, at the moment, but they begin to ask, is it I? Is it it I that will deceive you? Is it I that will seek to uh, betray you? And it seems as though all of the disciples were asking that question because they realized that there was the possibility within them that they could have been the betrayer. The potential for all of us to turn against God and to be rebels and to be enemies of Christ, it's not even just that as a potential. We're born as his enemies. And enmity against God, opposed to God in every way and in every fashion. So we need to search that out in our hearts. Is there some aspect of cowardice? Is there some aspect where we're crafty in our activities in the church even? And we can try and put on a facade. I I know what it's like to come here. I know what it's like whenever I was younger going to Lurgan. I know what it's like on the mission field under the ministry of my own father. Week after week, getting dressed and ready for church. Going to school in Bam Ridge, only up the road from here. Telling people that I was a Christian, yet living like the world. And even the sinners in my classroom coming up to me and asking the question, Aaron, why are you doing that whenever you're a minister's son? Why are you doing that whenever you you, you tell, you, tell us that you're a Christian? I was deceiving myself. Never mind the people around me. 
we can very easily fall into this trap. We need to be careful not to think that we are better than these people. Because there go we all but for God's grace. And all of the disciples could have done what Judas Iscariot did if it were not for God's grace. We come to a merciful God and to a kind God, to a caring God, to a gracious God. And we need to realize as we do so that in us, within us, lies the potential, the depravity to do whatever you can imagine against him. It's by his mercy that we stand here. It's by his grace that you are here. And perhaps there's one that would seek to deceive yourself and one that might even be at this very moment deceiving those around you. Take off the facade. Turn yourself into the Lord. Acknowledge what it is to repent of your sins. Whatever plotting it might be, it might not be the death or the murder of somebody. But let us not fall into the same trap as these enemies did. Because while you may not have been actively engaged in plotting his very death 2,000 years ago, it is because of sin that he hung upon a tree. In a sense, we could say that we are all guilty. Guilty of plotting with his enemies. The passage goes on and gives a contrast, though. And tells about a woman that was prepared for his death. And some commentators, again, just in reading a few commentators this afternoon very quickly, they give the impression that there are some people that think it was just by chance that this woman came along with an alabaster box full of ointment and broke it over the, the, the Lord's head and and in John's Gospel, I think it is, it mentions her washing his feet with her, with her hair. And it gives all, all this account. And some people say that the Lord just simply took the opportunity, because it was within the week of his death, to, to use it as a picture and an illustration of his burial. That he was being prepared as a body uh, would be prepared for the tomb. I, I'm going to differ with the majority of the commentators that I read uh, this afternoon and say that I think... The passage makes it clear that this woman knew in her heart what she was doing. Jesus Christ makes it clear in my mind that verse 8 it says, She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. She came for that purpose. She came to anoint. This woman is in other gospels described as being Mary. The same woman that, in fact, maybe just turn you there to Luke's gospel chapter 10 for a moment. Luke 10 and to the last part of the chapter, the last little section. Luke 10, verse 38, and we'll read down to the end of it. It says, Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she helped me, or that she helped me. Verse 41, And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Mary, I'll not go to the portions that are identifying her as the woman of this section, but Mary in that place is being identified as a woman of faith. Here we see her work. It's quite a strange contrast. Martha was so busy about serving in Luke chapter 10. But here in Mark's gospel chapter 14, it is Mary that is serving the Lord. 
And so sometimes we think that service is, is something that is to be forgotten about. We should just be engaged in being at the feet of the Lord and let others do the service. But here we see this woman doing both, coming together, uniting these two things in one person. And uh, as we, we see her work, we should not be forgetful of her faith as well. Um, this morning, we are really focusing upon the foundation of prayer. We didn't deal so much with the practice of prayer. That's almost another topic altogether. The foundation is one thing. But here we find more focus and emphasis upon her actual practice of her life of faith. She comes to the Lord and she acknowledges him as the Messiah, it seems, in this passage. She has believed his reports. She has believed his word that has been preached in days gone by. And she comes into this house and... um, anoints the Lord. Let me just uh, pause for a moment because there is uh, something that is worth mentioning here. Uh, Mark isn't speaking in chronological order at this stage. Um, You might know uh, from your reading of the scriptures that this takes place at a different time um, to the last week of his life. Um, What happens at Bethany here is it's not happening immediately after verses 1 and 2. Mark's kind of recounting and remembering and reflecting upon something that happened a few days before. And there's again some controversy as to why he does this. Is he getting things mixed up and muddled? I believe the purpose that he has in his mind when he does this is to lead us from the grumblings and the gripings of the disciples, namely Judas, and leading us from that grumbling and griping Judas of the Sabbath a few days prior to the grumbling and griping Judas that would run to the high priest and to betray the Lord. I believe the purpose of this passage is to show a connection between what he actually would do and how he would partake in betraying the Lord and to the actual root cause of his betrayal. I believe it's found in this story. As Mary comes and she, she breaks open a very expensive perfume, we could say, and the house fills with the scent and the smell of this ointment being poured out, not just a few little drops. Some commentators, again, emphasize that the way the bottle would have been formed, it was precisely designed so that only a few drops could come out at a time. And very often the custom was that they would have went in and anointed the head or the feet of the, the host of the house. And so she would come in and, and it would be expected that she would have went to Simon the leper, perhaps, and anointed him. But here she comes and rather than coming with a, a bottle uh, that would have been very precious even in and of itself, never mind its contents, rather than coming and, and dripping a few little drops over the Lord's head, she comes and smashes it, breaks it open so that it can all be poured out. And she does this, there must have been some courage to do that. Again, we need to remind ourselves that this was not 2022. That 2,000 years ago, for customs to be broken, and for a woman to almost intrude into the house at this time, whenever the men were just finished eating, perhaps a lunch or something, uh, that for her to come in and to do this, it would have been unusual at the very least. And as this ointment was broken over the head of the Lord, it must have been a courageous thing for her to do. And again, that should be contrasted with the cowardice of the people that are found in chapter 14 in the verses 1 and 2. She comes with courage, but there is also cost involved with this work. As she anoints his head, it is described as costing 300 pence, verse number 5. It might have been sold for more than 300 pence, say the apostle or the disciples, and had been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. Again, history would tell us that 300 pence could have been about a year's wage. 
Can you imagine coming into somebody's house with something that cost you? I don't know, the average wages today. Uh, it could be any, any figure, whatever figure you want to pick out. Think about your own wage. Something that cost you thousands and thousands of pounds. And to come in to smash it. And to break it over somebody's head. To anoint them with it. To waste it, as it might be said. You know, while the scent has long gone from that room, and the smell can no longer linger where it once was, the Lord has not forgotten the service of this woman. In fact, he has purposed that it would be here in the scriptures as a memorial for her. And so we should be careful to to learn a couple of lessons from this lady. Because we as Christians, while it may not be a box or an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, which was very precious that God wants us to give. We ought to give our all to him nonetheless. Whatever it is that we hold on to that is most dear to us as believers, we need to realize that it is not ours to hold. That might be our children. It might be our home. It might be something, some possession that you might have. It seems a bit frivolous to think about the worldly contents of our house and the things that we we possess in that sense. But you go and strip all that away, God wants us to be broken. He wants us to be poured out. He wants us to be sacrificed upon the altar. To give our lives to him in every single part and in every single way. This woman, while she gave this very precious ointment, that was only one small part of it. Again, this activity was grounded in her faith. It was a work, yes, and it was an essential work. And Jesus Christ delights in her work. Why trouble ye her, he cries to his disciples. Might seem a bit flippant, but he was basically telling them to shut their mouths. And sometimes we are a bit like the, uh, like the, uh, the murmuring disciples, aren't we? That's one thing that I think is, is sad about the church here in Ulster is something we fall into the trap. I don't know whether it is just the Ulster man's sort of culture or what there is within us as, as a, a group or as a nation. And I'm sure other nations have the same problem as well. But isn't it so true of the church today? Sometimes we're more, no, more known for, for the murmurings, for the griping. We're known for giving glory to God. This woman, she did that which was right. She did what she could, as Christ puts it in the verse number eight. So we need to have this desire in our hearts to do what we can. But she was doing what she could with the possessions that she had because of the faith which had possessed her. And while this isn't maybe the main focus and emphasis of the passage, I think it is still nonetheless seen. It tells us that she came, verse eight, aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. I've already told you that I believe that she was fully aware of the fact that this was the last week of the Lord's life, or at least coming very close to his death. And the reason for that is because this same Mary that we read about in Luke chapter 10 was at the Lord's feet. She listened. She spent time in his presence. Unlike the disciples, it seems she believed what he preached. And this was not the first time that he makes a recollection or makes a prophecy about his death and his impending uh, crucifixion. And his burial, this is something that he's been talking about over and over and over again. Even in just the previous chapter, chapter 13, it says there in the opening verses that the disciples were coming to him and looking at the temple and saying, look how amazing this building is. 
And Jesus Christ says, Seest thou these great buildings, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And uh, there's many things that we could uh, highlight from that passage, but there's one sense in which he's been talking about the temple before, and he's used it as a picture of his body that would be destroyed and raised up again in three days. And so there's this acknowledgement that he would die. If you just glance back with me to um, Mark chapter 8, and I had scribbled down a couple of other references. We'll have to go by memory here. I think it's chapter 8, and the verse is 31. It says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So it wasn't that they couldn't understand what he was saying. Peter fully understood what he was saying, but chose not to believe it. Chapter 9, same sort of verses, I think it's 30 to 32. It says that they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it, for he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they go on later on to find something more of the answer. And while these disciples that were closest to the Lord didn't understand, it seems this woman did. The question then comes to us tonight, do we understand the importance of the death of Jesus Christ and of who he is? The anointing here that takes place in chapter 14 is interesting because not only was it the custom of the day to go into the home of the individuals that was hosting a dinner or a meal and anoint them, but anointing in general is a very pictorial thing in the scriptures. Kings and priests were anointed. The Messiah himself was the anointed one. That is what his name really means. I believe this woman, Mary, as she was pouring this alabaster box of oil and spikenard over the head of Jesus, she did not just see him as rabbi. She did not just acknowledge him as being a good man. I believe she was doing this in acknowledgement of the fact of his position as Christ, as Messiah, as the anointed one. Yes, primarily in view here is his death, but his office is seen here. His purpose for being here is found in this passage. Faith that he was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah. Faith in his message, his message of the fact that the Son of God would have to die. This is seen in the fact that he's explaining to us here in verse 8 that she came to anoint his body for the burying. So this twofold aspect of her, her understanding and her faith, I believe, is seen in this passage. You might differ with me as you read it yourself, but I think if you put these things together, that she was doing it for his bearing, she anointed this as well, it wasn't just indifferently done. You wouldn't take a year's worth of goods and waste it as the disciples saw it without purpose, without understanding what you were doing. And so this woman, I believe, understood. She didn't fear what the men around her would have thought. She didn't care what the disciples would say about her and what they would mock and, and maybe jeer at and murmur about her against. No, she was careless about those things and all she cared about was God and his glory and his son. And so as believers, our focus and our attention, as we live our lives, as we break the alabaster box of our, our very bodies every single day in his service and, and to do something for the Lord, we should do it in the mindset and with faith, believing that it is the Messiah that we're doing it for. 
It's because he died for us that we must, as it were, die for him day in and day out, crucify the old man, kill the old nature and live unto righteousness. This is what the Christian life should look like. We should be prepared, just like she was prepared. She was prepared for his death. And rather than being prepared for his death as New Testament individuals today, we should be prepared for his return. I was very tempted to preach last week's message from chapter 13, but I've always sort of said to myself that I'll not preach in a pulpit unless it's vacant and there's no minister there on the end times because I don't want to step on anybody's toes too much. But if you look back to Mark chapter 13, he's dealing with his second coming, being prepared for the Lord, watching and waiting and praying for his return. And while this woman was watching and waiting and praying and preparing for his death, the scripture has made it clear that he has died and he one day will return. And for us here tonight, the question must be asked, are we ready for his return? Are we watching? Are we waiting? Are we praying? That we would not fall into temptation. This all leads us to the third point. And it centers on his friend. This is what Christ calls him. And again, remind ourselves of who this is. It's one thing for the self-righteous, arrogant, proud Pharisees to be plotting against him in the secret. But right in front of the disciples, right in front of the face of the Lord, there is one that he could call friend. One that preached with his colleagues, One that it seems scripture would indicate he even performed miracles with them. But one that would ultimately betray him. Turns back against them. I always remember dad preaching a sermon on Judas. Speaking about the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And how in a few chapters after this. This traitor would come and kiss him. He would kiss the blood-stained brow of our Lord. As he kissed him after Gethsemane, where he sweated great drops of blood. And there might be somebody here tonight, maybe you're so close to the king. So close. Yet in your heart of hearts, you're still a betrayer. God still looks upon us here tonight, each and every one. For it is a day of grace, and he would say, friend, what are you doing? Would you not be like this Mary of old, that acknowledged that monetary gain and the value of these things and possessions that we have in this world are meaningless? This friend that was partaking in his death and betrayed him ultimately, he did it for a bribe, for a little bit of money, for 30 pieces of silver. Some reckon that that was about the price of a slave. He didn't take a year's wage for it. But it seems to be that a year's wage is what got him a bit upset. This Lord is wasting money, he might have said. Maybe the rebuke that he received in the verse number six, let her alone, why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Maybe that was irksome in the ears of Judas. Maybe he got frustrated whenever he was rebuked and others were encouraged to continue doing what they were doing. 
Maybe he had got himself into such a position where he thought he was better than the other disciples because he was a treasurer involved with the money. Maybe he thought himself to be self-righteous because he was thinking about the poor and the charitable giving of the, the gathering of the disciples there and what they were doing with their money. Whatever the purpose might have been, it seems at this point, seeing a Christian woman, a person that believed in the Messiah, that acknowledged by faith who he was, that that was what caused the problem in his heart. So sometimes it can be for us as well. Jealousy can well up within us, and who knows where sin might lead to. Whatever sin it might be, however small it might seem to be, sins can build up and they can swell up. And as James talks about it, who knows what it might bring forth when sin is conceived in the heart. This friend, or this Judas Iscariot, is contrasted with Mary here. And just as we conclude the service here this evening, I wonder, can there be a contrast drawn with us as well? Who are we more like in reality, spiritually speaking? Are we more like Judas Iscariot that was begrudging what the Lord had received from Mary, that was willing to betray him for a few pence, basically? What is it that we, we focus on? Is it Christ and his majesty? Or is it just what we engage in day by day, monetary value. Jeremy Vines, commenting upon this passage, especially in regards to the response of the disciples and Judas here, whenever they looked at it as being a waste, verse number four, why was this waste of the ointment made? He makes a, a very important comment just about waste in general. It says, waste is whatever you do, that you do, I'm gonna, I knew I was going to stumble over this because it's a bit of a tongue twister. Waste is whatever you do, that you, maybe I've written this down wrong, that's what I've done wrong. I'm not going to get it out now. Let me just get my other scribble that I have from earlier and see if I can read it any better. Waste is whatever you do, that you do not do for Jesus. You can see why I got my, uh, my words all mixed up there anyway. So they were complaining about this money being wasted, about this, the value of this being thrown to the side, so to speak. Yet, in reality, perhaps there is somebody here, even a Christian here tonight, that you're, you're wasting your life, really. And I can stand in the pulpit and say the very same thing about my own life because I can preach here, there, and everywhere. I can prepare sermons. I can stand in the pulpit. I'd actually go as far as to say anybody here could do what I do week after week in a certain way. I remember being in, in high school, having to go up and give a speech um, for English class or something, and I could hardly get a word out left, right, or center. I remember in Scripture Union, one, union, one of the first times, standing up in front of the, uh, the, the, the whole assembly of my school in Lower Sick or Upper Sick, uh, very young in the faith at the time, but being asked to open in prayer and I don't really know all the reasons why, but literally my whole upper sixth and lower sixth form of Bambridge Academy burst out laughing when I closed my prayer. It's because I couldn't understand what I said. And perhaps you've been sitting all day today thinking the same thing. You speak too fast. But anybody can stand in a pulpit. Anybody can go into the street and lift up a megaphone or a microphone and begin to speak. Anybody can send a text message. Anybody can call themselves a Christian. Anybody can do all these various things of life. Anybody can be a Judas. That's what I'm saying. 
what is difficult and what is costly is being a Mary. And it's not a waste of your life to be a Mary. I'd far rather sit in the pew with my mouth shut and live like Mary Monday through to Saturday and stand in the pulpit and preach and do nothing the rest of the week. The sad reality is, for me and perhaps other preachers as well, far too often that is more the reality than we would like to admit. It's easy to preach. It's difficult to practice what we preach. It's easy to hear. It's harder to be a doer of the word. I know tonight's message has not been the most eloquent of sermons if I've ever preached an eloquent sermon. I know the preparation that I would have liked to put into it has not been there just because of the restraint of time. But just beyond this preacher and beyond the sermon outline and everything else that we try to construct as ministers of the gospel, you'll see Mary. You want to be like her. You'll see that there's nothing of greater value than being right with God, being remembered for your service for him, and giving your life to him in every part. As we close, I trust that this congregation will know what it is to be at the feet of Jesus week by week. I know from experience, during my first year in Bible college, whenever it was over, um, in the old college building, can't even remember the town that was in there now, uh, Reverend McCammon would have been there uh, once a week at least, giving us the Bible devotions and speaking to us as students. There are some times where I would have been sitting chewing my nails off, I think, uh, trying to take in everything he was saying. I have this bad habit, but especially when I'm stressed out about something, trying to take something in, uh, that I'd have been chewing the hand off myself probably right in front of him. And I remember that was all because I was taking everything in from his, his preaching, from his teaching. You're blessed with a minister that knows the gospel, knows the word, knows the book, inside and out. I know that you're fed here week by week because if I, the fact I was fed uh, all those years ago, although sometimes he might have wondered what I was doing, sitting chewing my nails off at the front of the class, is because I was trying to take it all in. So be encouraged by the fact that you have a man of God, that you can come here week after week and know that you're sitting at the feet of Christ. Not because he's Christ, but because he's an ambassador for Christ. And I trust you'll pray that he'll know what it is to be helped as he ambassadors for Christ and be that ambassador week by week. And as he presents the word, you'll be fed Lord's Day after Lord's Day. You'd be encouraged in the word. I trust that you as a people will know what it is to be like Mary, not to fall into the betrayal of Judas. And it is a sad thing as we go around congregations, just to mention this in closing, you know people's faces, and sometimes you go to a church and you wonder, well, where was such and such? Or, and I'm, I don't know if this is the case here or not, but in other places anyway, especially among the young people, you see people from our generation that we used to go to youth fellowship with, used to run around with, maybe even evangelize with, and we wonder where they are. The question must be asked, were they a Judas? Were they ever saved at all? And without seeing any fruit, surely there is that doubt sometimes. Let's not fall into a lukewarmness, thinking that we're all okay. Let's not just think that we can go on life indifferent to what we're doing and how we're living. But everything has a cost. Everything has a price. And that's what it is to pay the price that Mary paid and to fall at the feet of Christ once again and to wash his feet, to anoint him, to acknowledge him 
as he is the Messiah and the King of our lives. Let's just bow together as we conclude this evening.